The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. progressing in John's gospel in considerations now that have finished the 13th chapter with last week's consideration. We have entered that part that the commentators call the farewell discourse of Jesus, basically seems to begin at about verse 31 of chapter 13 and extends all the way through chapter 17. We're now at a very familiar place with John 14 and verse 1. I'm just reading three verses, very brief text today, but a very important one and a familiar one. Listen to God's Word, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And this is the Word of God. There's a medical problem that costs the United States an estimated $100 billion, with a B, $100 billion every year. And in fact, the American Medical Association would list this problem as the leading cause of death in our country since it ends approximately 600,000 lives every year, even more than cancer. Now, I would be perhaps very rude to contradict the American Medical Society, but in fact, the real leading cause of death in America is abortion. But the second leading cause is heart disease, all forms of heart disease, heart attack, arrhythmia, aneurysm, congenital birth defects of the heart, many things that can impair or stop a beating heart. 600,000 people per year, $100 billion is the cost. That's huge. Well, in our farewell discourse from Jesus to his 11 disciples, we hear him now telling his close friends, let not your hearts be troubled. And I think we know right away that he's not speaking about heart trouble that is physical, that involves surgery or echocardiograms or EKGs or MRIs or any of those other alphabet soup things that the doctors would throw at a patient. It's not a physical condition, but it's something very real and absolutely debilitating to the souls and minds and spirits of human beings. Now, these opening words of John 14 are, as I said, among some of the most familiar New Testament Scripture. It's also among the most popular of Scriptures and beloved of Scriptures. Any pastor will tell you that If you're dealing with a family member planning a funeral, 
and saying, what scripture might you like to have emphasized? I would say the chances are at least 30 to 40 percent somebody's going to mention John 14. And as a result, I have preached on John 14 all the way through verse 6 or more. I can't even begin to say, probably 50 times at funerals, because this is a very comforting text that people want to hear from. The words of Jesus here are seen as and judged to be both beautiful and very consoling, comforting, but we're not looking at them merely because of their literary sentiment or their loveliness as phrases. We're concerned about the doctrine that underlies this. What we see going on here is that Jesus was actually looking right into and right through these men that he loved, the 11 disciples who were left, Judas being gone now. And he saw that their hearts, their mind, the word heart, you know, is is used in that unified way in the Scripture to mean the whole being, the spiritual being, the mental, emotional being. Their hearts were deeply disturbed. And Jesus knew the intensity of this, and he knew the reason for it, and he knew the ministry that they needed, and he provided that ministry, not only as a master diagnostician, but as a great physician of souls. It was Job long ago who once declared, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Job 14, man is full of turmoil, stirred up troubled, in difficulty all his life. And yet 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our turmoil, our afflictions. We want to ask, can we really expect God to give Christian believers calm steadfast hearts in light of all the things that cause us trouble and turmoil and unrest and disturbance, the economic problems, the international chaos, the, just the personal difficulties of living day to day, the facing of death to people close to us, the stresses that come, different for each of us. How are disciples of today supposed to have mental and emotional and spiritual stability? Can we find something like a gyroscope to keep us on balance through all the seasons and the difficulties of our lives? Well, my structure in addressing these three short verses is quite simple today. I just have two main headings. First, I'll suggest to you that in the first century among these disciples, as well as in the days of today, disciples today, There are indeed very legitimate causes for people to have spiritual heart trouble. I'll talk about that a little bit. But secondly, and longer in consideration, I will try to unwrap the thesis of Jesus here in these verses as he shows that while heart trouble is certainly legitimate, there is even more reason for those who believe in him not to be defeated or taken captive to this spiritual disability. And they'll have several heads under that second point. First of all, let's look then at the very sufficient causes of the heart trouble that Jesus was referring to here. 
Now he fully understands what's bothering these 11 remaining disciples, why he would say their hearts were troubled. They'd been riding a pretty high wave just a few days earlier when they saw their master conducted into Jerusalem with people waving palm branches and shouting his praises and literally calling him the Messiah of Israel. And you you try to think of their minds as, as they saw that happening. They were saying, yes, yes. This is what we've known was true. We have seen in this man speech such as no one has ever taught, miracles of great power. There is no question that God is present in the person of Jesus as with no other person. He is indeed the Messiah. Isn't it great that people finally realize this? But things have changed in just a couple days. I mentioned back in chapter 13, verse 21, just a couple weeks ago, how they noticed that he was now very troubled that something had overcome him that had changed him. And they also knew that he'd spoken about his death, that he had hinted he was going somewhere that they couldn't come, and he had predicted that one of them would be a traitor. And furthermore, separate from that, he had said that Peter, of all people, Peter, the rock, the leader among them other than Jesus, Peter would deny him several times. These are matters to cause sharp anxiety. The Greek word here that that says a troubled heart means shaken up or stirred up, violently disturbed. And these men are now thinking, well, instead of a Messiah sweeping into Jerusalem on a white charger to confront the Romans and the corrupt Jewish establishment at the temple who will take over and change things and and make us his top cabinet officers, by the way, which we were expecting. It looks like Jesus is going away. And what will happen to us? Why, the Romans will come down on us, or the temple leaders will come down. We might be killed. And it seems as if now a shining kingdom for Israel's Messiah was about to crash and burn before it even gets off the runway. No wonder these men had troubles in their hearts that night. Well, we can say many things, I suppose, about transferring those troubled hearts to more modern times. I think even from the realm of intellectual thought, how in the mid to late 19th century philosophers in Europe began to speak that mankind had sort of changed We had turned a corner, and those with a German background or Scandinavian background began to talk about the angst in life, the anxiety, the fear, the difficulty of just facing everyday life and bringing to it a sort of cold dread of what might happen. The philosopher Kierkegaard wrote a book well-known in his time called The Concept of Dread. And he said that modern people, modern of the 19th century, that is, experience in everyday existence a great fear that they try to hold at bay of things they can't even name what the cause is. Others came along like Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre who who took a far more cynical turn and said, "It's, it's all meaningless. It's all existential despair, nihilism, Nothingness became 
a term familiar to some. The idea that life had no meaning. The artist Vincent van Gogh, you may know, began his life in a very conservative, fundamental Christian home and hoped to be himself a preacher. He even tried it. And apparently from a practical standpoint, he was a miserable failure at this. And it caused him a lot of difficulty that he couldn't pursue that. But this man who once knew and reveled in the salvation of Christ left a note, I understand, that was found after his death that somewhat mysteriously said, the misery will never end. What a different ending his life had from its beginning. Some of you who know art history at all could picture a famous painting in your minds by a man named Edward Munch. Mr. Munch himself wasn't a terribly famous artist, but his one painting was. It's an abstract painting of a figure that has his mouth open in a big O with his face like this. It is entitled, The Scream. And many have said that Munch's painting, The Scream, seems to be the typification or the exemplar of the horror of humanity at two world wars in the 20th century. Sufficient causes of the heart trouble Jesus was referring to. Well, it still abounds, doesn't it? There are many sources of individual angst or anxiety for you and me. Job insecurity, not enough money at the end of the month, not enough money for retirement, worries over our health, the stock market is dead in the water. TV news reports every day on terrorists decapitating Americans. And shopping centers and theaters seem to draw the madmen with their automatic weapons. Our national leaders don't seem to lead or be capable of it. And we have a Supreme Court which now assumes it can replace the supreme being. Do you wonder that there's reason for heart trouble? It's a dangerous world perhaps more dangerous than it's ever been. Powder kegs ready to be ignited in many foreign places and even at our borders and within our borders. And like disciples of Jesus, we have plenty of our own causes for troubled hearts, some very narrow and personal, some very broad. What in the world is the future going to bring? How will our grandchildren experience the world? Is there any of the joy and confidence there that we thought was once in the world? There's very sufficient cause for the heart troubles of men and women. Well, Jesus didn't call us to be pessimists. He didn't call us to simply rehearse these things and say, tis, tis, look how bad it is. But on the other hand, he also didn't call us to be Pollyannish and to say, oh, well, you know all that, but it really isn't as bad as you think. No, it really is bad. But we are to face reality of all people. Christians are to face reality squarely, but do so with the presence and transforming power of our God and Savior on our side. And so while we admit there are many valid causes for heart trouble, our second point from this text is the mainstream of Jesus' argument. He said, there are even greater reasons for you not to be troubled or not to be overcome by your troubles. And I give you those three pieces of his argument here in these few verses. His first sub-point, arguing that there are greater reasons not to be troubled, is the fact that he is one who can give a firm pledge 
as God's personal and unique representative that despair will not and cannot have the final word. I see that in his statement, two statements there. Believe in God, believe in me also. The experts in the language argue, is this, is this merely a statement of a fact or is it a command? Most of them settle on the side of command. If you believe in God, believe in me the same way. Believe in me for I am God. I speak for God. How many times in John already has he said, I only speak the things that my Father speaks. I represent him. You hear my voice, you're hearing the Father's voice. He says it now. He's commanding them, saying, in the same measure that you might profess to believe God most high, you can believe me. The Jehovah God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the God who is creator, the God who is called most high, if you trust him in any way and you claim you do, then trust me because I speak for him. You see, the deity of Christ is at stake here. He is one with God. And if the word of Jesus Christ ever fails, then God himself will have failed. Now, these disciples were imagining Jesus being betrayed. They were trying to get their minds around that idea, the fact that he was going away and all this. And all they could think was total catastrophe if that happened. Their minds came up to the fact of his departing or his death, and and it was like hitting a brick wall. They couldn't go any further. Jesus is trying to speak around and beyond that brick wall. And he's saying, look, men, I understand that it may seem pointless to you that I would leave you, but I can see past what is going to happen. I can see the other side of what's going to happen these next few days, and I give you God's own pledge that it will be God's good result that comes about, not the absolute and ultimate tragedy that you perhaps think is going to happen. Isn't it true that our everyday security of mind and peace of heart, living in our media world, trying to thread our way among so many facts that pound at us, facts that undermine confidence? What if they steal my identity on the computer? And oh my goodness, you know, you can let your mind run wild and you would be deeply depressed in no time. But our security of mind and peace of heart is founded on taking God at his word. If you believe the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then believe me, Jesus said. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, we hear the prophet say to the Lord there, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. We need more than just You know, the vague idea by a song like that, 50-year-old song, sorry, I really hate this song. If you like it, I'm stepping on your toes. But a song from the 1950s, remember it? I believe, I can't stand the line in that song, I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. That's not the God I pray to. The God whom I listen to is not someone in the great somewhere. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who is creator of all things, who is sovereign Lord over all things. When he speaks, mountains tremble and nations flee from him. 
This God speaks through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this God, we must believe and take the word of Jesus, the Son, as being as good as gold when he gives us a promise. And when he says this event will turn out for your good and I will work it for your good, you can believe that. You can take it to the bank of heaven. God speaks through his appointed representative, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first thing here. But then a second sub-point in this argument, trying to convince us that there are sound reasons not to be troubled, is verse 2. And we read there, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Somebody will come up after the service and point me with their finger to their King James Bible and say, what's this rooms business? It's a mansion. I know the old gospel song. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Well, let me tell you, once in a while, we dare to suggest that the King James translators did take a little liberty. The original word does not have any implication to it about the richness or the lavishness or the mansion-like nature of your heavenly home. It really is a word that means dwelling. I know room is a little prosaic. You say, boy, I was looking forward to 10 acres and, you know, a palatial estate, and now you're telling me I've got one room? Well, the main point is it's a dwelling. And it's more than that. It's God's dwelling. It's a place where God makes a space in his home for you. That's the emphasis that Jesus is putting across here, not whether it has gold window shades or something like that. It's the place where God dwells and you will dwell with him, and that is something guaranteed and assured for people of faith who will hear this word from Christ. We might paraphrase Jesus here. He's saying, since separation by death, separation from me by death is what troubles you men, know this. The destination where we will meet again is the very dwelling of God, and when you are there, you won't be homeless anymore. And in fact, maybe you don't even understand that you're homeless right now, but you are, because the only true home you will ever have is the home reserved for you by our God where he dwells. A few months ago, I was headed for the General Assembly of our denomination in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and to plan for that uh, a while ahead. I guess it was at least about eight weeks ahead of the event. We made a reservation at a hotel in uh, the city of Chattanooga. Uh, I won't uh, criticize the particular brand of hotel, but it was one that you would think would be right up there at the top in the way it does business. And we had our room reserved. We had confirmation of that. Your room is reserved And then a month later, getting rather close to the actual event, we got an email saying, we're sorry, we overbooked. And you're among those overbooked. Sorry, no room. No room at the inn. They didn't even offer us the stable behind, you know. But Well, Jesus is assuring redeemed believers in Christ who will come to God by way of him that this notice will never be sent to you. He's saying there is room in the dwelling of God for those who will come and trust in me as I go there. And as I make that place ready for you, it's your lasting home. Hebrews 11 says we look for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And you say, boy, 
we've got some pretty impressive looking cities right here on earth. Did you ever see Manhattan? Amazing. Well, I think we've already found out what the tallest skyscrapers in Manhattan are susceptible to having happened to them. There is no building or no impressive foundation in this world that cannot fall or will not be out of date or will not be torn down in a generation because somebody needs something better. And isn't it amazing that people will mock heaven and say, oh, you Christians and your heaven, your pie in the sky by and by, that cloudland fantasy. Heaven is not cloudland. How many times have we said this? It's not the place where you will be an angel. It's the place where you will dwell and bask in the visible glory of the true and eternal God. And more than that, it's the solid, everlasting place. And by comparison, this present world order, no matter who the president is or what country is the main superpower, is a shaky, trembling place that really has no lasting foundation at all. And you're not home while you're in this world. You're home when you're home with God at last. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul told the Philippians. So as a final point, not only do we have this home guaranteed to us in verse 2, but Jesus goes on to say a little more about it. He's saying, I'm going to prepare that home and then safely gather you there. I will go prepare a place for you, and if I do, I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. We've had some remodel. I've got remodeling on the brain because our office has been remodeled, or some of our offices. Mine has been untouched, but I've had to climb over painting scaffolds and different things going on in our office area for several weeks now as we're trying to make better workspaces for our staff. And you've had to divide with a new wall and wiring and painting and carpeting. And maybe that comes to your mind when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place. After all, he was a carpenter. Maybe he really was, was, had to, you know, put an addition on or something to provide. No, that's not what this is saying. On the night that Jesus spoke this, the preparation still had to be done. But today, as we hear this word, the preparation is done. Because the preparation Jesus was talking about was his work on the cross. His being the atonement for sin, being the Lamb of God slain, his 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 preparation was his appearance in heaven as the great priest laying down the sacrifice that opened the gates of eternal life to all persons who trust in the work and the preparation that he provided. And of course, his resurrection and his ascension only was the crowning work of all. Heaven is a prepared place right now. Jesus isn't furiously trying to work to a deadline to get it ready for you. It is prepared. He did it. He did it perfectly. And he says, I will receive you. The implication is if he doesn't receive us by our death first, when he comes, he says, I will come again. And we think he's certainly referring to his coming in glory. Then I will gather all my people and take them to be ever with me. Well, in conclusion here, you should be able to see that by placing absolute trust in the person of Christ, you have an open avenue as a solid cure for a troubled heart in this world. Yes, there are reasons for your heart to be troubled. There are reasons for you to be immobilized by dismay after you've watched the evening news. 
We live in very dangerous times. I urge you, ladies and gentlemen, as you try to analyze the next president of the United States, don't analyze that person on the basis of trivial issues. International issues and the dangers we face abroad are the great issues, and they are the issues the next president is going to have to either lead us in to safety and respect in our world or fail to lead. And what disaster may follow that? I don't even want to speculate about. But there are reasons for dread. There are reasons for trouble. Yet God has given us something solid to grasp in light of these downright scary times in which we live. We have a sure faith in God's own spokesman, the Lord Jesus Christ. He can be trusted. He's never broken a promise, not once. All these things he promised here were done right afterward. We also have the assurance of a home with our Father in heaven and the assurance that he, Christ, will see that we get there and see that we are gathered, certainly, and bring us to be there where we would dwell in unbelievable splendor and peace with our God. Just as Jesus read the minds of his good friends, the 11 friends left to him here, this Lord Jesus Christ reads your mind. He knows what troubles you. It might be something that doesn't trouble anybody else in this room. Your troubled heart might be completely unique, but he knows it. And these promises he has spoken are promises that address you. We know from the end of this gospel and on into the book of Acts that he did everything that he said he would do. And we know then that right now we have sure confidence to trust him to do it for us. So let not your hearts be troubled. And neither let them be afraid. Our Father, help us. There's so much cause for dismay and real fear and immobilizing distrust. People make big promises and they don't deliver. We're in danger in so many ways from computer theft to the highways to uh, dangerous accidents happening to those we love, spiritual unravelings of those who walk carelessly with you or have never known you. And on every side, there's reason for us to be troubled. Thank you. Thank you for a Savior who addressed that, who knows it and can stand up against it. Help our trust to reside in him and nowhere else. In Jesus' name, amen.